Welcome to episode 154 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist, Markham Hislop. If you're a regular listener to of uh, Energy Talks or you uh, watch our uh, shorter video interviews on YouTube, a uh, persistent theme is that as the world electrifies over the next three, four, five decades, every country is going to have to increase its generating capacity by fair amount. Uh, in Canada, I've interviewed uh, economic modeler, Dr. Chris Bataille, who says, as a rule of thumb, we're going to need two to three times the electricity we currently generate uh, in the sort of more developed countries. And in developing countries, it'll be three to five times. Now, this is, Canada's going to be no exception. We're, we, even though we have a, a great power grid now, or 10 power grids, as it, it turns out. But anyway, we have a very successful electricity system. The question is, what do, how do we expand it by two to three times by 2050? It's not immediately obvious. And I'm going to talk to Jason Dion, Senior Research Director of Canadian Climate Institute, which recently published an op-ed Electric Federalism, an idea whose time has come. So welcome to the interview, Jason. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. The fact that, I mean, you look south of the border, I say this all the time, the amount of effort and capital and uh, that the Americans are putting into modernizing their power grid and beginning the process of, of expanding their generating capacity, uh, particularly in states like California and Texas, and then you look north of the border, and there is not a lot happening. And my hypothesis here is that we have been so successful in Canada at building a reliable, uh, reasonably priced, and clean power grid that we've kind of become complacent. And we don't we just don't see the need yet. We don't feel the pressure to change the way the Americans do. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes and no. So I, I would say that, you know, part of the reason why you're seeing so much more activity in some parts of the US, especially when it comes to renewables, is just the way that they regulate electricity there. So it's a lot of private firms in a, operating in a, a mostly deregulated market. In Canada, we, we lean a lot more on big vertically integrated public utilities. So it's part of the history. What that means is that the openings for kind of upstart independent power producers aren't aren't as numerous here in Canada. It's really if the big public utilities decide to procure that kind of stuff. Now, Alberta is an interesting exception here where they have a market much more similar to the U.S. and you're seeing a lot of uh, you know renewables development there. So I don't want to make it sound like our model is a disadvantage. In many ways, it could prove to be an advantage. But I think it is one of the big reasons you see that difference in activity. I think on both sides of the border, everybody's only beginning to wake up to the reality of just how much build out of system scale is going to be needed. Well, let's talk about the the way the Canadian system might be an advantage, because one of the things it does here, we don't have any we don't have the uh, FERC like they do in the U.S. We don't have regional planning commissions like they do in the U.S., Uh but we do have these big vertically integrated utilities in BC Hydro, where I live, and uh, Manitoba Hydro, and on and on and on. When I talk to experts about changes in the electricity system, the, the problem with incumbents 
comes up over and over again. Incumbents, uh, whether you see it in the oil and gas industry, whether it's in the electricity industry, they don't like change and they like to control change to their own advantage. And so fewer incumbents, big incumbents down in the U.S., more federal and other regional planning pressure that can be brought to bear on those incumbents. We don't have that here. Advantage or disadvantage? I, I think there's pros and cons to both. I, I think what we don't want to do, or at least we should proceed with a lot of caution on, is reimagining the way that all this works, right? Like we have the systems we have and we should make use of them. And so there are things that can be done in a Canadian context, and especially in provinces that have those big public utilities that can't be done in the US. An example being that the government, uh, you know, cabinet can write a directive and order in council to these crown corporations, mandating them to, per to pursue certain types of development, to go after certain activities. That's not a, a tool that exists in the US. They have to do it through market design, whereas the opportunity to kind of direct these utilities to act in the way we, we want and need them to is, is much more available in Canada. So that's a big advantage. We are only beginning to use that tool in the way that might be needed to step up when it comes to climate change. But the fact that it's there in the tool belt is not nothing. And I think it is a definite advantage for Canada. Okay. Well, let's talk about the idea of electric federalism. And top of the list for top of the list of the things that are preventing change or impeding change, obstacles to change in Canada are fears about affordability. Now, I understand this because in BC, in BC, BC Hydro provides me power at 9.5 cents uh, a kilowatt hour for up to a particular uh, level of consumption. And I think it's about 13 cents after that. Those are pretty pretty reasonable rates. And they're far lower than Alberta, actually, at the present time, and, uh, and some of the other provinces. Uh, and those are all my costs. I'm not paying you know, fees for distribution and transmission the way they do in Alberta and so on. So when I look at electrifying our home, we just put in a heat pump, BC's model works really well for me. And I can see where there's a lot of consumer... Uh, buy-in and uh, you know uh, affection and allegiance to that model. The problem is, you need the government to direct the crown corporation, and and the governments are always worried that the changes they make are going to drive up costs. What do we do about that? So, I mean, their desire to not see ratepayers get stuck with high costs is is good, right? We, we want them to be concerned about that. I think where things are getting stuck a lot right now is, you know, if, if you show a utility, well, look, you know, this amount of development or population growth is going to occur. We need to be ready to respond to that 100%. They're, they're going to begin to, to do that work to be ready. The, what's getting things stuck in this context is that we know we need to build out electricity systems by a multiple of where they are today in order to meet demand associated with electrification that's gonna come when and if we get serious about climate change. But this puts utilities and regulators in a bit of a tricky position because what they do is go off, you know, tangible load forecasts, tangible policies, legislation. What does all that mean concretely for where power demand is gonna be in the coming decades? 
So we have goals and targets, you know, in, in Canada at the provincial level, sometimes federally around where we want to be on GHG emissions, but how that connects to electrification and power system imperatives in the decades ahead is a bit more uncertain. We've only laid out track for policy that extends, you know, at best a decade from now. And that's probably appropriate. We don't want to rigidly set out policy for decades to come, but it's it creates a tricky situation for, for system planners, for system operators, where they're having, you're asking them or hoping that they'll build in anticipation of demand that is only going to materialize if governments follow through on climate policy later. So there's a bit of a sticking point there. And, I, and we've done some work on what's going to be needed in order to get us building the systems that we want to, are going to need so that they're ready when we need them. And that can come through the work of mandating these organizations around provinces doing comprehensive energy planning, other tools like independent pathway assessments. And we can talk about all of those. But really, the critical thing is that we want to have these utilities stepping up to this job, keeping an eye on costs, regulators being there as, as, a, as a gatekeeper to make sure we're not overbuilding systems, but that we are building systems that are going to be what we're going to be needing if we're going to be getting serious about climate change. Well, let's talk about electric federalism then, because what you're talking about is the federal government, at least as I understand it, is the federal government playing a coordinating role, an organizing role, a motivating role, bringing uh, significant funding to the table and helping provincial governments cooperate, setting uh, goals, that sort of thing. Is that what you have in mind? Yeah, and, and and a little bit of background on that is that we we did this big piece of work called the Big Switch that looked at a bunch of the policy challenges, barriers, and recognized, look, many of these require provincial governments to act, either directly themselves or through their regulators or system operators, their public utilities. The goals are, are national and federal often. Some of the tools exist federally, but in, in Canada, electricity is provincial domain. So affordability is another cross-cutting challenge. What, what electric federalism is, is our effort to cobble together solutions to the many different challenges we face into one package that can sort of solve a lot of problems at once. So by the federal government putting big money on the table for provincial-led electricity transitions, we can help address affordability challenges, which are huge. We can also incentivize provinces to get serious and get moving with some of the hard work that this involves. Now, and the model we've pitched for this is that that federal money would come with some strings attached but nothing especially prescriptive, right? This is just about provinces doing their own work to get serious about net zero and electrification and the federal government providing the incentives and the funds necessary to do it without overstepping on jurisdiction. So I can talk more about the model, but that is the basic idea. And it's not unlike they just did with childcare, the federal government, where provincially managed systems, the federal government came in and played a funding role that it hasn't historically, in exchange for a few high-level principles being adhered to. And that happened amazingly quickly. So where there's a will, there's a way, and we think there's a lot of interests aligning around an idea like electric federalism. I think I think that's an important point, is the basic model is is very consistent with past federal policy, past federal federal strategies. I mean, in, in a sense, you also saw a, a similar approach to increased healthcare funding. Where the the federal government held out, uh, despite the despite the complaints from the premiers who wanted the money without strings, but they eventually uh, knuckled under and agreed to take the funding with strings. 
And it's a very, so this is a com, common approach. And, and I can see the, I can see the wisdom in it. Now, I, I wanted to ask a question about the federal agency that the, uh, the, the current liberal government was pitching a year or two ago. Uh, you know, I forget what it's called, what they've called it. Uh, they announced it in a budget and it was going to be some like a, a national uh, forum for planning around electricity systems, the, the, the grid council or something like that. National Grid Council, uh, yeah, Federal yeah. Grid Council. There we go, uh, and and then it just kind of fell off the table. You know, we don't talk about it anymore. And it, and I think it was Wilkins, uh, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, whose mandate letter contained that. And Wilkinson doesn't talk about it anymore. What is that a has that been abandoned, or is this potentially a a mechanism that the federal government can use to uh, help implement electric federal federalism? Yeah, so this this pan Canadian grid council that they've proposed, we are we are still waiting to hear the details. My understanding is that they're coming and that they've been actively working on this. the The vision is not necessarily so much an agency, but from what I understand, rather a sort of advisory group that can show what the path forward could be. You know what some of the provincial actions required are, but including and especially what the federal government's role might be in all of this. So. That will be an important vehicle. In our own work, we had some suggestions about how this could not only be something for the federal government, providing advice to that government, but ideally a platform for sharing experience and best practices across provinces who, despite being very different, will face many of the same challenges in this larger energy transition. So maybe that broader scope that we described will happen in this grid council if not, there are other vehicles for that, but that, that work is important regardless. But from what I understand, this still is coming. It will be important, but we should remind ourselves here that you know what where the US has FERC, which can actually set sort of standards and regulations for electricity, no equivalent exists in Canada. So this needs to be led by the provinces. And that's why the incentives with just a few strings in the form of electric federalism can be so powerful in this context. Now, one of the the components of electric federalism is that the provincial governments would have to agree to develop net zero energy plants that would guide the build out of the electricity systems. Now, there are some provinces that are going to have no problem with that. British Columbia would be one, Quebec would be another, probably Manitoba, you know, with given all the elect the the, the big role that hydro plays in in its economy. And then there are some provinces that would probably have some trouble given the current governments, and I'm thinking Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario would, would be the, the major culprits here. And how would this, your approach, maybe cajole those provinces to get on board with, you know, net zero clean energy plans that they have been reluctant to put together to date? So let's, let's start with what they would get out of electric federalism. And, and what we're describing there is significant sustained federal funds against investment costs that would be going on at the provincial level in electricity systems. Now, of course, that's not a free lunch. That still, the costs still exist, they need to be borne. But we've done some research, some quantitative analysis that shows, in fact, paying for these investments out of tax systems and including and especially the federal tax system is a much fairer way of bearing these costs than clawing them all back from ratepayers, which has been the approach we've taken until now. So it actually lands much less heavily on low-income households when we do it through taxes, and it spreads the cost much more evenly across the country when we do it through taxes. 
which is quite fair recognizing that some provinces that haven't been blessed with abundant hydropower do face a more costly transition. So that's what you would get out of this if you're one of these provinces is reduced pre upward pressure on rates and significant funding to be able to move forward with these investments. Now, what is being asked in return? Well, we're talking about mandating regulators, public utilities, system operators that look, climate change is part of your job. You know, that's not at odds with the interest of ratepayers because they have, you know, dated mandates that never had to really deal with this question. So clarify that, number one. Number two is as a province, develop your own net zero energy plan that is not an overly prescriptive or binding document, but rather a vision that can guide the work of all these institutions involved in the electricity sector, including private, private operators and power producers, around what, what the vision is here. What mix of power are we talking about? Uh, how, what's the vision for how building heat would, would be decarbonized? What energy sources are we using there? Start to answer some of the difficult questions, many of which are inherently political, but pick your own lane on, on net zero and how you're going to get there. So really, it would, as long as it got there, the vision, it would be up to the provinces to define. So they get authorship over what their net zero energy future looks like. Now, the third piece would be to commission independent pathway assessments. So some external credible group coming in and saying, look, here are all your options when it comes to development of your power system. Here are the pros and cons of each in terms of costs, reliability, you know, how much they rely on sort of around the corner technologies. That's a really useful touchstone for everyone involved and gives everyone a common set of facts. And that's it. You know, we're not talking about more strings than that attached to the province. So a province, all they really need to do to access those funds is what I would define as kind of get a little serious about what dealing with climate change is going to mean for them in their jurisdiction. So I think it is a powerful model and you work with the provinces that are ready to work with you. But I think, you know, Ontario being an interesting example, they're, they're quite pragmatic on a lot of these questions. And I think there might be more openings with that federal money on the table than some might assume. I want to bring up the issue of British Columbia as uh, an example of a, a government. Uh, the BC NDP came in, formed government, brought in the uh, Clean BC, their, their climate plan it was widely lauded. Uh, they've done a lot of good things on it. But one of the criticisms of it is that it does call for the electrification of the province, you know, widespread electrification of transportation and and particularly space heating uh, and heat pumps, that sort of thing. Uh, but BC Hydro plays a big role in the economy and and uh, and it, I'm sure it's a difficult beast for any provincial government to to manage. But when they they were the government was criticized, for bringing in climate, uh, uh, climate BC, uh, sorry, clean BC, and then not giving BC Hydro a clear mandate to how to that that it needs to plan for electrification as envisioned in clean BC, and so what happened was BC Hydro went away with his garbled mandate and came back with a uh, integrated resource plan last year that where it really didn't know what to do. You know, it 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 imagined two scenarios. It had the main load planning uh, growth plan, you know, the, the integrated resource plan envisioned very modest growth. Really, that wasn't tied to electrification the way the government was thinking about it. And then they had this sort of airy-fairy net zero scenario that really was, you know, not credible. 
And uh, I, I interviewed Dan Vinalovich from Polaris Strategy in Vancouver. And, you know, he was very clear about that, that the government has to give a very clear mandate to the government owned utilities in order for this to work. And it hasn't yet. And do you see that maybe being a an issue coming up? So BC is a great example of this kind of deeper disconnect that I was talking about earlier in that you've got a government that's serious about climate change. You know, they've got this clean BC program that they, they have this advisory body. They have a lot of the pieces that you'd hope to see where it's lacking a bit at times is how clean BC and their climate goals connect to energy system imperatives. So to their credit, you know, the, the government, they directed BC Hydro and mandate letters two years in a row to build an electricity system aligned with the goals of clean BC. Now, the challenge there is that Clean BC is not necessarily specific enough about how those climate goals connect to energy. Exactly. And even though, B, you know, so the, some might say, well, <laughs> that's for BC Hydro to figure out, right? With this mandate letter asking them to do that. The challenge that they run into, and I'm sympathetic to this, if you talk to all the folks involved, is their regulator, the BC Utilities Commission, is not mandated for climate change, only can sort of make decisions based on the legislated policy environment in front of it which doesn't necessarily lay out the level of energy system growth that's needed to align with clean BC. So BC Hydro's assumption often is, well, until we have something more concrete in hand, we can't get this past the regulator. So exactly. what they do is they submit an integrated resource plan that kind of goes off what they think they can uh, anticipate based on enacted policy. And then uses as a sort of contingency scenario, one where, well, what if we did meet our climate goals as stated in Clean BC? And that's a lot of people saw that as quite puzzling. Like, why, why is that not the basis of planning? But there is an understandable reason for it. And that's that the B, role of the B, British Columbia Utilities Commission in all of this hasn't been made clear enough. So what can you do to break the logjam? My answer would be mandate all the parties involved. So you've done that with BC Hydro. Do it with BCUC as well. Number two, develop a bit of a vision for net zero energy that is the energy component of, of clean BC and the province's climate targets. And third would be that piece about independent pathway assessment. So we can all be working with the same kind of basic understanding of what our options are here. That would then give, and this is something we heard from regulators, that they need and they can have in the form of a province's net zero energy plan, a defensible basis for their decisions. Because if you're asking them to go out on a limb as they see it, about what's going to be required from this future energy system, you're actually opening up their decisions to being overturned on appeal. And that's a big problem. So we need to give these groups the tools they need and the direction they need to do this job and then let them do it from there, right? Like there, there's a lot of expertise there. We don't have to decide everything for them. Certainly not. Right. So would the idea of electric federalism, the role of the federal government bringing capital, getting everybody together, we have a grid uh, a grid council where best practices can be shared and issues discussed, would that go a long way to overcoming uh, the kind of difficulties that, that BC is encountering currently? I mean, my view is yes, because I think there's a lot of inertia to overcome here. So even in a province like BC that's trying hard, it's an uphill battle to get all these changes that you need in electricity system planning and governance. And the carrot of significant federal money can jumpstart things. And yeah, you work with the provinces that are willing to work with you and you work with the rest in time. 
with this carrot in hand and this incentive to start to get serious about some of these changes. Because our observation was, if we're just sort of waiting for it to organically develop at the provincial level across Canada, that's one approach. But given the urgency of all of this, given our desire to get this right, to wrestle down affordability challenges, this vision is a role for the federal government that makes sense for them, given their jurisdiction, that offers a fairer way of bearing the costs, but also can jumpstart the actions needed at the provincial level without being overly prescriptive about what they should be and stomping all over jurisdiction. We've only got a couple minutes left, but uh, just one uh, point that you that was raised in the op-ed. The worst thing we can do right now is to underinvest in our electricity systems. And the obvious thing, and this is kind of, would be kind of a Canadian approach to things, is put it off and put it off, and then all of a sudden events catch up to us, and then we have to fix stuff, and then we 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 rush uh, uh, whatever investments we're making and changes we're making, and we don't do a good job of it. That uh, that is a, a big danger, particularly the pace at which the global energy system is changing, and which we are expected to electrify our economy. Right. So the, the good news here is that the level of load growth that we're envisioning in the long term, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Like it continues to grow through this decade and beyond. So now is a good time to get started, right? So it's not too late, but we need to be serious because if we are slow to develop, to sort of step up on the supply side, if demand is leading supply, then we risk strain systems, we risk price spikes. We don't want any of that. So we want to be on top of this challenge, especially recognizing that all of this takes time, right? Permitting and siting of projects takes time. And, and we should think about ways of streamlining those processes, but simply recognizing that in the, even in the best circumstances, this is a process that is gonna take time. If we know this is where we need to go, let's begin today. That would give us the leeway to go about it in a way that can keep an eye on costs and cost effectiveness. Let's, let's go about this conscientiously and carefully by starting today. Well, Jason, this is a fascinating discussion. I have no doubt that we're going to have this conversation many times over the coming years because it's just too important. I, it's uh, uh, become a, uh, you know, an axiom of mine that uh, electric, clean, abundant, low-cost electricity is, is the foundation of the 21st century economy. And if we don't have it, then we're not going to be competitive. It, it is literally, and we have the opportunity here to to grow the, the electricity systems that we have to make it a competitive advantage in coming decades. Uh, and we know that now we need to get started. So I think this is uh, the idea of electric federalism is a very good one. Thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you.